This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Forever. Dog. Comic books, comic time. Writers and artists are on the line. They make a splash as a comic's read. And take us on a trip behind the spread. Watch out. For comic book commentary uh-huh. Spinning a winning inside Fix how they got a hot idea Narrative character visual tricks And onomatopoeia Uh-huh It's comic book commentary Alright, well my name is Brian Hill And I am recording a audio kind of, I guess, walkthrough Of Batman and the Outsiders number 8 uh, So the... The issue starts on page one. You know, we've got the crisis in motion with the plane headed towards Gotham. What I really wanted to do here was, you know, kind of echo the, you know, the kind of classic aspects of the character. You know, the idea that Batman is uh, almost like a force of nature that Gotham can call on to, to stop something. And, you know, we go to page two and we see him here, you know, looking at the uh, bat symbol. Uh, thinking about the things Batman thinks about, the things he's failed, the people he's left behind. Um, you know, I think a big part of Batman as a character was that he's always taking on the weight and the responsibility of tragedy, even if it's not his fault, he makes it his fault. Uh, and I've always admired that. I mean, it's, it's not necessarily the most positive thing to do, but um, there is a nobility in it. And, uh, that's part of why the character means so much to me, and I wanted to, to echo that. You know, a lot of times in the comics, I feel like the superheroes, they're not saving people enough. You know, it, it descends into soap opera, um, grudge matches, but we get left behind in, in those stories. And for Batman and the Outsiders, I didn't want the story to feel like it was happening uh, indifferent to us, to suffering, to protecting the innocent. The next page, we go into the middle of this kind of tension-filled action sequence here. We've got Caliber, who has revealed that he is now working for Rayshawn Ghoul. Uh, and, yeah, you know, there's the idea of a contained space action sequence with these characters is interesting to me, because it maintains a different kind of tension. Uh, you can't go all out with your powers because you are in an environment that can't sustain that kind of battle. And it, you know, it just adds a different dynamic. When you're doing action, what I always try to think about is how can I 
add a layer to this, something that makes it a little more than just punch face. Um, you know, whether it's in the blocking, the location, the, the characterization that's being revealed in this case, we have Sophia, who is wrestling with her Babylon persona given to her by Rachel Ghoul. And if we go into the third page, you know, she makes a choice to spare the heroes from Caliber's treachery, uh, which sends us into a big death spiral. One of the great things in comics is whether it's two people talking at a table or it's a plane about to crash into Gotham, it costs just about the same, right? Like there's a, you know, kind of equivalence of, of spend. Um, so you can make it big. You know, comics can get really big and then suddenly kind of small and intimate. Uh, it's unique to the form. You know, I work in screenwriting and television writing where budget is always a consideration. And it's nice to be able to work in a form where you don't really have to think about budget. Uh, you can do anything you want. Um, so the next page here, page five, you know, we have Jefferson and Tatsu uh, struggling in the falling plane. And a lot of people think that I'm setting up a potential romance between the two. And um, that's not necessarily what's on my mind. I'm not saying it can't happen. I'm not saying it won't happen. I'm just, I don't think about things in that way. You know, I, I if you're going to do a love story between characters, I think it has to evolve organically kind of out of their relationship. And, and some of it's reader response and some of it's what you see potentially uh, for them. And the question for me is always, does the relationships, does it allow us to, learn anything more about these characters? Is it just a pairing or is there something unique that could get unearthed about each character in a relationship um, that wouldn't be able to be accessed otherwise? Right. I mean, it, you know, it's again, story is the master of all of this stuff. So it's never really about what I want to see as much as an opportunity that, it, that presents itself. And so I don't know where the relationship is going to go. Uh, but I'm having a lot of fun writing it. Now, so now, uh, you know, we go to the big splash page here on page six. And uh, Dexter is just a brilliant uh, aesthetic storyteller. Uh, you know, he's able to create these huge moments that are so powerful in like a really graphic way. Uh, and I'm learning more and more how to lean into it. So one of the things that happens when you're working on these things is, it takes, at least me, it takes me a, a few issues before I really start to get a sense of the, the way the art is collaborating with the writing. And over time, you get more comfortable, and it's almost like basketball, where you can not look at, you know, where you're throwing the pass and just know that the ball is going to get there. Uh, and it, it takes time on the court to develop that relationship. And Dexter and I, I think we're, we're, we're getting there. You know, and and it's really me, you know, the onus is on me to have to respond and um, be better, uh, you know, be a better, I guess, vehicle for his talent, which I think is kind of the job of a comic book writer in a way, is you want to vehicle the collaborators you work with. You know, right? This, the script starts the process, so you have that uh, opportunity to do so. Um, and then we are on the next page here, and, you know, we go from kind of like a violent image on page six to a beautiful image on page seven. Uh, and, you know, I love juxtaposition. You know, I love 
going from violence to, to beauty, uh, going from serenity to chaos, all of that makes the, the page flip experience for the reader a little better. Um, now down here, yeah, sometimes my, you know, if you're looking at page eight, my, my filmmaking instincts show up sometimes. Uh, I try to keep it in check as much as I can because comics is a different form than, than movies are. But sometimes you almost treat the, the reader's eyes like a camera. Uh, and when you want to slow time down, uh, you pick a composition and you kind of hold it and, and show in little ways, you know, what's happening in the progression of time. And it does give things a cinematic quality here. You know, you've got even, um, panel size for the first four panels and the fifth panel is a little bigger. We get to our close up. Uh, and that's like editing and pacing. So I don't have native comic book instincts. All of my editing instincts come from filmmaking. You know, I think about when would I cut to a close-up? When would I use a long shot? Um, so the next page, you know, is not a splash page because uh, we just have a, a panel here at the top and then three panels underneath. But it almost serves the same purpose as a splash page. And I love the way uh, Dexter draws Batman. You know, he just... Gives Batman like a strength and a uh, just such a, a strong, um, forceful quality. You can almost hear, you know, the Kevin Conroy, you know, and he'll never have it. Or you, Sophia, welcome to Gotham City. Like you can sort of hear that there, and and you know, that's that's great. Um, and then you know we have Jefferson and um, Tatsu. Katana, uh, kind of in a little moment of lull after almost dying in a plane crash. I love these little moments of uh, consequence and recovery between these heroes. Um, that little beat that makes them human right after doing something superhuman. Um, again, I guess that's that juxtaposition that I'm always uh, chasing. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So now we have the next page here, Jefferson and Bruce talking about Alfred's death. You know, the it, Alfred dying, you know, really kind of forced me to wrestle with that in a way that I didn't know I would be going into writing this book. But you, you, you want all the back books to at least be in the same emotional continuity. You know, um, I don't know. I can't tell you well. Batman is happening on Thursday and Batman the Outsiders is happening on Friday. I don't know about that, but you want the bigger moments to um, speak to, to each of the books, I think, in, in, in a way. Uh, so I had to incorporate that there and 
the friendship between Bruce and Jefferson is something I'm really enjoying uh, evolving and developing. Um, you know, Bruce needs friends. And in a way, I think Jefferson also needs friends. I have never looked at the relationship between them as, you know, uh, you know, Jefferson is serving Bruce Wayne or, you know, he's an errand boy to the Batman or any of that. No, I, I think they're just two very different people that have different ways and, and you know, different modalities of dealing with uh, the world. And Bruce brought Jefferson uh, into his world because he admired what the man is. And Jefferson admires many things about Bruce Wayne as well. But Jefferson doesn't necessarily admire things about Batman, if that makes sense. Right? So he is always talking to Bruce, even when Bruce is wearing the cowl, uh, and forcing that, that truth, you know, between them. <clears throat> and I think that's, uh, that's something that's helping to strengthen, uh, their relationship. And I think it, it kind of helps each of them to be in the presence of one another, even through difficult times, you know, moving on from page 11, you know, we're going to page 12, and now you know, Sophia is being brought to the Batcave by Katana. Um, I'm very reluctant to just have anyone know that Bruce Wayne is Batman. And uh, in this issue, uh, I make it pretty clear that Sophia doesn't know who Batman is. Uh, Tatsu, Katana, she may, but Sophia doesn't. Um, you know, and you want to preserve the majesty of the Batcave. You don't want him to become too colloquial, too, uh, you know, I guess, approachable. You, you, you want to maintain awe, I think, with Batman. You know, with Bruce, you can do certain things. But when a character is brought to Batman's world, you know, his cave for the first time, I think it's a moment that requires uh, some kind of, you know, awe-like like bit. Uh, and so if you look at page 12 with this, big, beautiful panel that Dexter drew and the, the different Batmobiles, you know, that are there. Uh, I think it helps evoke that, that feeling of being introduced to the cave for the first time. You can almost hear like the Danny Elfman in the background. Like, like that's the kind of stuff that um, I love doing. It's what kind of keeps me working in the media and being able to recreate those moments. You know, and they're having a conversation about the nature of Batman, which is kind of what happens in books. Uh, uh, that are group books where Batman's a part of it. You, you're sort of, you know, expected, and it's fun to do, to do these conversations where people have discussions about the nature of Batman. Um, he's a character that people often talk about more than they talk to. Uh, and uh, I find that um, interesting to write because it allows you to paint him in different colors depending on who is speaking and, and what their perspective is. Um, you know, and then we have Sophia and, and, and Katana, you know, sharing this, this moment here. Uh, I, I don't often think about making sure that, you know, there's enough representation for the black characters or the female characters or the gay characters or the straight characters or what have you. Uh, I don't have those prejudices in my, in my heart or my mind, right? So it's not something that I feel like I have to kind of work Towards, I just try to make sure they all happen organically. You know, in writing, uh, there's a thing called the Bechdel test. And I guess this might fail the Bechdel test in the sense that they are having a conversation, but they are having it something about Batman. But I guess they're really also talking about her, right? So if you go to, like, page 14, 
with this nine panel grid. Um, and Dexter is able to give you so much information in the nine panel grid. Um, you know, nine panel grids can be difficult because they can wind up just being a bunch of big heads if you're not careful. But Dexter is very good at picking angles and, um, being able to add detail and a sense of space. You know, he knows when to drop a background out, knows when to put a background in. It's never something that I have to talk to him about. He just does it instinctively. Um, and now they're having a conversation about, about Sophia. You know, Sophia and, and Katana are talking about her. So I guess this page passes the Bechdel test uh, uh, in a way. Now, oh, for those who are listening who don't know what the Bechdel test is, it's, you know, it's I guess it's a qu- test as a question. Does your story have a scene where two women have a, a conversation, a moment that isn't about a man? And um, it's a good thing to keep in mind, I, I, I suppose. Uh, um, but... Yeah, you know, it's it's hard to have a bullet point list of things that you're trying to, you know, make sure you accomplish. But it's one of those things I, I look at after I've written a draft and then I can go back over it and see if there's a way I can make it more inclusive or a way I can make it, you know, make sure everyone has a voice and no one feels left behind. But I, I always make sure that it's governed by story. You know, story has to be king. Um and whether it's a female character or a male character, a black character, a white character, a Latina character, you know, what, what have you, um, I make sure that they can all have the same range of characterization. You know, I mean, they can do horrible things. They can do honorable things. They can, they can get hurt. They can suffer. Uh, and I don't try to protect any of my characters um, because I, I, uh, I think that hurts storytelling to have to do that kind of thing. Um, and readers are very smart and readers understand nuance. And as long as you're thoughtful about your work, I think that they will take that trip with you and they will trust you, um, that you're not going to overlook, you know, uh, a certain demographic in the way that you execute your story. So moving on to page 15 now, now we get Duke and Cassandra, you know, and, and so, because I have so many characters in Batman and the Outsiders, I tend to pair them off. Um, not always the same pairs, but I do tend to break them into two-person scenes. Um, mainly because I feel like scenes with two people in them are a little more rich. You can do a little bit more in-depth work on them. So it allows me to explore their characterization in an interesting way. Uh, so we have Duke here using his, you know, his new powers, uh, Spreading the darkness, controlling the darkness, powers given to him by Ishmael, who's changed him, um, metahuman to metahuman. So we're building that plot point here and we're leading it, um, you know, into the next series of issues, which is going to be a big part of the story going forward is what's happening with Duke and, uh, his relationship with Cassandra, how their friendship is, you know, um, kind of helping both of them. Uh, previous to this, Cassandra dealt with the return of her mother, Lady Shiva. And Duke uh, is now dealing with how he's been altered by his enemy, but he also feels somewhat empowered by it. Um, uh, so, you know, it's again, it's one of those things where I try to keep things from being too predictable and, and keep people from feeling like they know, you know, where things going to go. Uh, and so this is the beginning of a long journey for, for Duke and Cassandra Kane. Um, but I, I like their trust. You know, I like the fact that they, they do care about one another and it's a real friendship, you know, uh, again, like I don't have romance on the mind here. Um, I don't think that friendships have to always turn into romance. Um, 
And so I, I feel like Duke and Cassandra are more brother and sister than anything else. Um, but it doesn't mean there can't be a tenderness and an intimacy between them. It just doesn't have to be colored by, by like romance, not in, not in this case. Um, moving on from page 16, now we're on page you know, 17. Uh, and it's Jefferson sort of checking back in with this old world. I mean, there's been some discussion about Jefferson and his work with Bruce Wayne and, um, you know, has he, has he forgotten about being a school teacher? Has he forgotten, uh, about, well, the world he left behind? And in Batman and the Outsiders, I have him working in Metropolis as a school teacher, um, instead of Cleveland, which is a city he's normally associated with. Uh, Cleveland is still in his background, but I have him as a principal in Metropolis. And that's really just because I wanted to, um, integrate him more into the worlds of Superman and Batman. And, uh, if you want to be like, if you want a brutal oversimplification of the DC universe, you can sort of split characters into these are Superman characters and these are Batman characters. And I think Jefferson goes into the Superman character uh, bucket, um, not from his power set, but just his his point of view. Um, he is more sunlight than moonlight, I think. Uh, and it seemed like Metropolis would be a good way to uh, anchor him into that energy. So that when he came into Gotham, he is not a Gothamite-like person, but, you know, he's coming from the, the shinier, brighter city into the darker, more foreboding city. Um, not that I have anything against Cleveland at all, uh, and we'll probably dig into his origin origins, um, you know, there at some point in the narrative as the narrative goes forward. Here he's talking to, you know, as a person from a school. Uh, I used to teach. I wasn't like a, um, you know, like a tenured teacher or anything like that, but I was a substitute teacher because you could do that without having to get certified, um, back in the day. And I, I, you know, education is really important to me. I mean, I wouldn't be here where I am right now if I didn't have an education. So, um, I like to honor, you know, uh, the work that teachers do, uh, cause it's very important. You know, those are the times in our lives when we form a form our senses of self, when we start thinking about our possibility. Um, and, it's really important, I think, to remember the uh, the hard work of that job. Um, I think it's great that Jefferson's a school teacher because we need more school teacher heroes. School teachers are heroes, anyway, so it's good to see them, uh, you know, doing that role in a, in a comic book. And after I said all that, now we're getting ready to do something terrible to Tina here at the bottom of the page. Um, which I suppose is like a Brian Hill, you know, kind of trademark. You know, uh, I always tend to kick characters down the stairs and, and watch them have to climb up to the top again. Um, I guess that's mainly because I I believe in adversity and stories about adversity, um, and I'm more interested in, a, in adversity than I am victory um, some of the time. I, I guess growing up, I learned more from the adversity in a story than the victory of a story. So, uh, characters that win all the time and kind of walk between the raindrops of consequence. I've never really been into that because it didn't feel real for me. I mean, I certainly didn't win all the time and, and I needed to read stories that helped me deal with failure and deal with loss and those things. So that's the, the kind of work that I do, uh, is do those, uh, kinds of moments and really play the consequence of them, you know. So moving on from 18 to page 19, here we go to, Got him with Ra's al Ghul and, and Lady Shiva. 
And I'm really enjoying writing both of these characters. Uh, Rachel Ghoul has always been one of my, my favorite characters. I remember when I was a kid and uh, I would read the TV guide uh, because back in the day there was something called TV guide and it would tell you what was coming on. And I would read the synopses of what the Batman, the animated series um, uh, episodes would be. And if there was a Rachel Ghoul episode coming up, then I would make sure I set my VCR and I would tape it and watch it because it was, the character never got a lot of treatment outside of the comics. And even within the comics, um, he would go away for long periods of time. And I just thought he was a fascinating guy. You know, subsequently with Batman Begins, you know, and, uh, the Christopher Nolan work, we got a lot of, a lot of racial ghoul, but not, even that wasn't the comic book racial ghoul. Um, you know, they, Nolan's world was more grounded. So his immortality was kind of like a sleight of hand more than an actual immortality. Like there is no Lazarus pit in the world of Nolan Batman, at least none that, that we can see. Um, but the kind of operatic, immortal, sorcerer, you know, eco, not really terrorist, but um, extremist that Ra's al Ghul is, but also like combined with almost like Marcus Aurelius, you know, it's, he's, he's got these meditations um, and it's, it's, it's like the acquired wisdom that he's, built over all of this time has led him to a different truth, the truth that lives outside of our ethics. And that's, that's a fascinating thing to write because he does have his own system of ethics. It's just outside of our own. But for him, you know, we're all very temporary because time is different for a man. It doesn't have to fear the advance of time. Uh, you know, not that he is permanently immortal, but he is certainly removed from the relationship that, you know, you or I may have with that. And uh, I wonder if we lived longer, what would we learn about the world? How would that change our view of the world? Right? Um, would we lose our current sense of ethics and, and gain a more brutal sense of ethics? Uh, you look like the Old Testament God, and you know that seems like a God that if he, if a man were to do the things that the Old Testament God does, we would call him, you know, like a tyrant, right? And that's always been an interesting, I don't know if it's a contradiction, um, but a complication, you know, with deity and religion and all that. And so, uh, you know, Raish kind of embodies that, those sorts of things. And Shiva, um, I've always been just a fan of the character, you know. Uh, I'm a bad martial artist, but a long-time martial artist, and um, you know, the discipline that it takes to get to Shiva's level, um, you know, the innate ability combined with that discipline, I think is, is really fascinating. I mean, she's a woman that's turned herself into a weapon, uh, but she's done it in the conscientious way. She's not a victim of her circumstances. She has just molded herself in a certain way. I mean, she's somewhat similar to Batman, you know, in that way. Um, you know, I always thought that Shiva and Batman, uh, ha have a lot of potential, you know, to when they're in the same story, especially with Cassandra Cain being almost shared between them. Right. Uh, and I love the way that Dexter draws, uh, racial ghoul here. And, you know, the way Veronica does colors is, is really fantastic. And, you know, there's a sexiness to it. Um, and I think that's cool. Uh, 
you know, I, 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 I like to have characters that are just a little more stylish than we are in the real world, you know, the, to be able to dive into the fantasy uh, of those things. But he also, you know, kind of renders uh, Shiva especially, you know, her, she's attractive, but it's very functional. You know, you can tell that there's a muscle tone there and, uh, you know, it's, it's not just, you know, sexiness and proportions and the rest of it. It's, it's almost like an athlete, you know, like the, the, the kind of physical charisma that, um, you know, an Olympian has where you just can tell that they've just shaped and molded their body, uh, you know, according to function. Um, and I think that's, it's a cool thing. And so, you know, they're, they're having a conversation about extremity and what race might be doing, what he may do in the future. Uh, and perhaps we're setting up that, you know, uh, there might be a, a difference in perspective between race and Lady Shiva. Uh, we'll see how that one plays itself out. And then finally we have this big splash page. Um, and I'm not always the splash page cliffhanger at the end of the issue guy, but I felt like here we kind of needed it. Um, because it, we're propul, we're like, it's, we're in a propulsion, uh, kind of period of the story now. We need to really like push through these issues and, you know, get to these conflicts and, uh, and all of that. And so I wanted to end this on kind of like a big thing. You know, Rayshaw Gould is always living with his thumb on the scale. Um, and any calm you have is a calm before the storm. Uh, and the next, you know, a few issues will be a series of storms. Um, really. Uh, and so here we are. Uh, rules are off the table. End of issue eight. So yeah, that's my walkthrough of Batman and the Outsiders number eight. Uh, my name is Brian Hill. I'm the writer of this book. Dexter Soy is the artist of this book. Veronica Gandini does the colors. Clayton Cowles is the letterer, uh, and Tyler Kirkham and uh, Nay Rafino um, have done the, the main cover. Um, and I'm really happy um, to be a part of this and to collaborate with all these great people. And I'm having a blast writing this book, and I hope you're having a blast reading it. So, thank you. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. And mastered by Anna Rubinova. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcast.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook. Pew, pew, pew.